0: Welcome to Random But Memorable, a podcast from 1Password. I'm Sarah, one of the founders at 1Password.
1: I'm Roo, head of password manager development. I'm Matt Davey, 1Password's chief experience officer.
0: I'm Anna, the producer behind the show. And we're the hosts behind Random But Memorable. Together, we offer up bi-weekly security advice, interview special guests from the cybersecurity community, and round up the latest in security news with Watchtower Weekly. We may even play a silly security game or two. So sit back and enjoy the show.
2: So what did, uh, uh, never mind, I was, I'm was. i asking the wrong crew. I was going to ask what everyone did with their long weekend, but like I doubt that Sarah actually took one and Matt didn't get one. So never mind, we'll just move on. What did you do with your long weekend?
0: <laughs> I bet you, I know what he did. I bet you there was some photography involved and probably some hiking.
1: Oh, aw, that's that's really sweet. Yes. Uh, you went into the woods and took pictures of yourself.
0: And your dog.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. And God damn. Okay. I guess I don't need to answer at all. Everyone just knows what I do all the time.
0: (laughs) Crystal ball.
2: Yes. Uh, I posted some pictures of myself (laughs) to Instagram that I had taken in the woods. It's selfie
0: season. (laughs) It's selfie
2: season. You got to give the people what they want, I guess.
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it's probably time To jump into some Watchtower Weekly. Let's do it. Uh, And that is my doorbell, because my new monitor has showed up.
2: Ooh. (laughs) Ooh. Well, so sorry, folks. Matt can't record the show today.
0: Uh... (laughs) It's been nice knowing you all. Goodbye.
1: I am very much hoping that my wife answers the door any second, and I don't have to go downstairs. We
0: all are going to wait here patiently.
1: Okay. I think she's got it. I think we're all good.
0: And she's sending him away.
1: It's probably time to jump into some Watchtower Weekly, (laughs) which is our regular segment where we like to discuss some breaking news and security, share our thoughts, and probably our unwanted opinions on it. So to start things off, we have millions of toothbrushes hacked. Could be used in cyber attack, researchers warn.
0: 2024, everybody. (laughs) Welcome to the future.
1: Anybody have a smart toothbrush? I sure don't.
0: I don't even have a power toothbrush. Like, I have a wrist and an arm. I'm good. That's enough.
1: Yeah. That's that's my thought, too. Yep. But I, I can't really, you know, say anything about teeth. <laughs> um, there, <laughs> Yeah. There's been many a tooth pun been made around this, so I'm not going to make any, despite Anna listing out several that I could use. Uh thank you there, Anna. <laughs> Security researchers have recently warned that millions of hacked toothbrushes could be used in a massive cyber attack. <laughs> Don't is it anybody else got the image in their head of like lots of toothbrushes like marching yes. in a in an army towards yeah. Exactly what my brain did.
0: Back and forth, left to right, Disney animation all day long.
1: <laughs> uh. <laughs> These have been likened to creating an army of smart toothbrushes, and if that is used in the wrong way, could cause millions of euros of damage. This is from the Independent. Internet-connected toothbrushes could be linked together in something known as a botnet, which would allow them to perform denial-of-service attacks that overload websites and servers with huge amounts of web traffic. Major websites could be knocked offline as a result of the attack, according to the Swiss newspaper, who first reported the threat. The issue initially was reported as an actual incident, but Fortinet has since clarified that it was a hypothetical scenario. The topic of toothbrushes being used for DDoS attacks was presented during an interview as an illustration of a given type of attack. It is not based on research, a spokesperson said. So (laughs) this is a bit of a non-news story, but probably clarifying there isn't a toothbrush army after your website.
0: But there could be.
1: But there could be, yeah. But there could be. (laughs) It also appears that due to translations, the narrative on this topic has been stretched to the point where hypothetical and actual scenarios are blurred. Fortinet warned of dangers of smart devices, which can include webcams, babies, baby monitors, sorry, not babies, not smart babies.
0: (laughs) Not babies. Not an
1: army of smart babies. (laughs) Doorbells and domestic appliances. Every device that is connected to the internet is a potential target or can be misused for an attack. Sooner or later, you will become a victim of your own device and it will be misused for attacks, he said. For someone clarifying that, you know, this is a hypothetical scenario, he sure did threat network himself up here. The growing trend of internet connected devices and AI enabled devices that were on show at CES tech conference in Las Vegas last month with everything from pillows to mirrors now having the embedded technology. The continued rise in the popularity of these devices has coincided with the fresh security concerns about the risks they may pose if protections are not put in place. A recent report from a network performance firm, NetScout, noted an unprecedented growth in malicious botnets with activity doubling in January. These consistently elevated levels indicate a new weaponization of the cloud against the global internet and confirms that a dangerous new wave of cybercrime is likely underway the interesting thing here is not the toothbrushes but just in general how easy it is i know we've discussed this before but like just how easy it is to make something smart and how a lot of companies don't put in the effort to make that smart feature that they've you know thrown in there. Pillow or baby monitor, actually secure, secure enough to the point where it can't be hijacked and used for something else. Because, like, hijacking your toothbrush is probably not on anybody's mind. Like, why would they do that? The effort involved is not equal to the value. But when you're thinking about you can hack lots of toothbrushes all at once and have them ping a server, which then takes that server down, suddenly the threat scenario that you're dreaming up there doesn't become so far-fetched okay it's pretty far-fetched but like not that
0: far-fetched
2: <laughs> yeah this is like the hacking equivalent of shaving off a quarter penny from each transaction and sticking it in a bank account somewhere like it adds up over time
0: i'm just so glad i don't have an electric toothbrush let alone a smart one <laughs>
2: I love my electric toothbrush, but it is never going to be connected to the internet. I'll tell you that.
0: I don't even have the patience to get my internet. I've been spending the last, that's what I did on the weekend. I've been spending the last several days trying to get my in-laws internet up and working. Like, I don't even know if I care enough for them to have internet at this point, (laughs) let alone to have (laughs) internet toothbrush. Like, so no Uh, toothbrushes over there, let alone, I can't imagine my mother-in-law calling me. My toothbrush won't work my internet's out. Like, I would hard no. Hard, no.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be that would be very weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> the, the internet is fast becoming one of those things where when it doesn't work, everything that you then do doesn't, you know, oh, the internet's out. I'm going to watch some Netflix. Oh, the internet's out. Oh, I need to use my electric connected toothbrush. Well,
0: that's what kicked it all off. So our cable provider in, I don't know if it's all of Ontario, it's, it's originally like cable, like coax comes out of the wall, cable, cable they've decided to no longer offer coax cable and it's all IPTV over the Wi-Fi's, right? Well, how are we going to watch Coronation Street if we don't have cable? Well, we have to set up the app and get the Apple TV and all the internets and all that. So now all I can think when you're like, when the internet doesn't work, I'm going to be like, how are we going to watch Coronation Street? Like, I'm going to have to go buy some DVDs. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, no, I know you saw this one already, but let's just try it again. (laughs) Let's go back to season 12 for fun. Why not?
1: Okay, from Coronation Street to... (laughs) election-related deepfakes. I think we're going to see a bunch of election-related cybersecurity news coming up very soon, because both the US and the UK have an election very soon. But this one, tech giants sign voluntary pledge to fight election-related deepfakes from TechCrunch at the recent Munich Security Conference. Do you know, I was watching something about the Munich Security Conference on Instagram, and the amount of Like U.S. planes that were landed in Munich Airport for that. It was wild. There were like three Air Force, two Army. Like it seems like everybody in the U.S. went to this Munich security conference.
0: They were just going to the party hangar. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe that's where all they, they were all staying. So, vendors of this included Microsoft, Meta, Google, Amazon, Adobe, and IBM, and they all signed an accord, marking their intention to adopt a common framework for responding to AI-generated deepfakes intended to mislead voters. Thirteen other companies, including AI startups OpenAI, Anthrop- Anthropic, Inflection AI, Eleven Labs which is where AI Anna came from <laughs> uh, and stability AI alongside social media platforms X, formerly Twitter and TikTok joined in signing the accord too. The undersigned said that they would use methods to detect and label misleading political deep fakes when they're created and distributed on their platforms, sharing best practices with one another and providing swift and proportionate responses when deep fakes start to spread. The company's added that they'll pay special attention to context in responding to deepfakes aimed to safeguard educational, documentary, artistic and satirical and political expression while maintaining transparency with their users about their policies on deceptive election-related content. The Accord is, you know, quite empty, as the critics have said, amounting to little more than virtue signalling, and its measures are voluntary. So none of these companies have to really do anything. Still, it does show a wariness among the tech sector of regulatory crosshairs that pertain to elections. This is in a year when 49% of the world's population will actually head to polls in national elections. That's quite interesting. There's no way the tech sector can protect elections by itself from this type of new electoral abuse. That was from Brad Smith. Vice Chair and President of Microsoft. As we look to the future, it seems to all of those who work at Microsoft that we will also need new forms of multi-stakeholder action. It's abundantly clear that the protection of elections will require that we all work together. In the last few weeks, the FTC announced that it's seeking to modify an existing rule that bans the impersonation of businesses or government agencies to cover all consumers, including politicians and the FCC moved to make AI-voiced robocalls also illegal by reinterpreting a rule that prohibits artificial and pre-recorded message spam. In the European Union, the bloc's AI Act would require all AI-generated content to be clearly labelled as such, the EU's also using its Digital Services Act to force the tech industry to curb deepfakes in various forms. This seems particularly timely as deepfakes are on the rise – According to Clarity, a deepfake detection term, the number of deepfakes that have been created increased 900% year over year. Last month, AI robocalls mimicking the US President Joe Biden's voice tried to discourage people from voting in New Hampshire's primary election. And in November, just days before Slovakia's elections, AI generated audio recordings Impersonating a Liberal candidate discussing plans to raise beer prices and rig the election uh, also happened. Raising the beer price. (laughs) Know know your audience there. My goodness. (laughs) Uh, In a recent poll from YouGov, 85% of Americans said that they were very concerned or somewhat concerned about the spread of misleading video and audio deepfakes. A separate survey from the Associated Press NORC found that 60% of adults Think that AI tools will increase the spread of false and misleading information during the 2024 election cycle. So that, that's a lot of information there. The fascinating thing to me is like, one, that these things are on the rise. Massively so. And two, did you see the sober SOBA, new open AI video engine, video, whatever <sighs> yes. it's called, model? Yes. Absolutely bananas.
2: So... I watched the, the Marquez Brownlee video about it where he was like he was like look this is where we were a year ago and it was a video an AI generated video of Will Smith eating pasta and it was a mess. Like it was comical. And he goes, This is where we are today. In a year, we've gone from unwatchable to something that can trick most people, especially if you're not paying attention. He goes, and this is as bad as it will ever be. So from here on out, these are only going to get better and better and better. And their capacity to fool people is only going to increase exponentially. It's wild. It's really wild.
1: Just the fact that so much of this is going to be based on what we can tell from machines telling us that it's fake. Like just how much trust is based on AI detection as well as AI generation is... Terrifying. Yeah.
0: Yep. It's one of those where anytime elections come into it, I'm always, you know, annoyed because voter turnout is so low and voter participation is so low. And like one more reason I can't even trust what I'm seeing. I'll be interested to see what voter turnout rates look like this year. I'm hoping to see people realize that, you know, if they want to make changes, they have to get out to the polls. But we'll see I do think it's kind of ironic, though, when we're talking about politics and like, look, we're all going to get along. We have all of these companies coming together and saying, we're all going to get along and we're going to use the same standards for stuff when it's very not the way they do things normally.
1: Yes. Yeah, very true. There's some goodness to it. There's an intent that they've kind of labeled. Hopefully it breaks out into follow through.
0: Fingers crossed.
2: Anyway, so I think we can get into my chat with Greg VanderGast. Greg and I recently sat down and chatted about his early beginnings as a teen hacker, how he used his experience and learnings to flip to the other side and build a career in security. And here, his focus is on a complete human and holistic approach to cybersecurity for organizations and businesses. I think there's plenty to take away from this interview, so let's not waste any more time and get straight into it. Anna, well done. You stopped me from saying drop it in here because I just read the copy. So good job. She did it. She did it on the show today we have a very special guest because with me right now is greg vandergast an advisor CISO, Author, mentor, and speaker, Greg was once cited as one of the world's five most notorious hackers and worked undercover for the US FBI and Department of Defense for three years after setting off an international incident by breaking into a nuclear weapons facility. He's since become one of the foremost thought leaders on how organizations can protect themselves with unconventional approaches, going far beyond just technology to include elements of strategy, leadership, and human potential. Welcome to the show, Greg.
3: How are you? I'm good. No pressure from that intro there. None, none whatsoever.
2: <laughs> Thank, gosh, it's it's really something. Like, that's a meaty intro. Congratulations.
3: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, the, the reality is, is probably a lot less glamorous. <laughs> <should we say. laughs> Thanks for having me, though.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, let's start off digging into some of that meat then. Can you talk a little bit about your journey from undercover hacker for the FBI and DOD to transitioning into the cybersecurity consulting realm?
3: Yeah, it's funny because I try to distance myself from that hacker thing, because what I do now is at the extreme end of the strategic and business focused and leadership and root cause kind of really big picture stuff that I think isn't even on the radar of most security people. And part of my challenge has been like, well, no one's asking for that because no one knows that these are even valid approaches. So the way to get bums in seats is to tell them, yeah, I used to hack a bunch of stuff. So there, there you go i do a lot of public speaking but they don't do research so very often i get hired for like ethical hacking like oh could you talk come talk to us about ethical hacking and i'm like i've never ethically hacked anything <laughs> <laughs> i've only ever gotten in trouble as a teenager kind of funny story out of its own basically uh i think i was about 16 years old when my sister brought home a vhs copy of film hackers so as, as a teenage boy that's a pretty good motivator you know, just started learning about operating systems and how stuff worked and how you could break stuff and make it do other stuff. And sort of semi-accidentally hacked into a a nuclear weapons facility somewhere overseas. I think like three or four weeks after they set up five atomic bombs on the ground. So it was quite a hot topic at the time. And just realized what it was, downloaded a bunch of research. And next thing I know, it's like CIA, DIA, FBI, and all that stuff. And then actually moved to the States because I was I grew up in Holland, had four suits show up at the door. The first one said he was from the DOD. I invited him in, you know, and I told him, look, I was, I was living in Holland at the time. This was somewhere over in Asia. I don't think I broke any U.S. laws. I was worried you guys were from immigration. And that's when suit number four raised his hand and said, I'm from immigration. <laughs> yeah, probably put in the back of a van, taken to a detention facility where to this day I still don't know where it was. I tried to be helpful to the guards, and they they immediately helped put me uh, in a bright orange t-shirt that said escape risk on it, which made me deeply un- unpopular with the other inmates. Yeah, and then some more suits came about a week later and made me a job offer I couldn't refuse. I am really adamant about the couldn't refuse part, and spent the next three years working undercover, getting paid cash by federal agents in underground car parks. So I did that for about three years. I don't want to really get into the specifics, but like a lot of counterintelligence, a lot of digging, meeting people, working out, you know, who was behind what and that kind of stuff. And this is where I got serious. You know, you are kind of high demand, you're kind of top of the world, rock star syndrome, playing with a lot of technology, a lot of money get thrown at you. And, and you're implementing all this tech, which I think is where, you know, most people in security kind of aspire to be today, playing with all this, the latest, greatest, coolest Cyber tech, but I think my overall mentality is more one of a problem solver rather than just a quote unquote security person. I think security is a really interesting problem, but I started looking at the bigger picture. I'm like, well, we're deploying all these, you know, firewalls and database encryption and intrusion prevention systems, which is kind of the, the latest stuff at the time. Like, are are we actually protecting the business? Do, do we know? What data is where and who's doing what, and how these business processes work, and what data I should even be seeing over this network that I'm monitoring? And at first I had no clue, and it kind of dawned on me that like initially, like everybody else hated process, but then realized, well, we're not consistently implementing, configuring, monitoring, managing any of this stuff, and are we sure we're not missing anything? So that I started focusing more on, how do I make sure I mature the technical tooling. And then once I reached that point, then I started realizing a lot of these things wouldn't happen if it weren't for some root causes elsewhere. So why don't we focus more on, you know, our IT maturity rather than spending an absolute fortune on security operations. And then, oh, but that's happening in other departments. And uh, how do I influence change there? And uh, how do I create a program that involves those things? And then you start learning about the business language of those people and you learn about business. And it, it basically took me down this journey where... Security is about risk management. And I think that is completely backwards. We should be like most other industries. I think you look at any other industry like manufacturing, aviation, oil and gas, healthcare. It's about quality management. It's about having really high quality in processes. So you don't have defects that cause issues. And we don't do that. We we don't go upstream. We don't go holistic. We just constantly detect and respond to the defects being exploited. And that's kind of brought about this, this really different approach to, to security that's very much process-focused, business process-focused. More about, not about doing IT security, but about going through your business processes and making sure they're secure. Came up with the moniker of like, stop doing cybersecurity, start doing business securely. So basically a very different approach. I'll let you ask me some questions there because I'm just going to monopolize your whole podcast.
2: I mean, that would that would make for a fascinating interview, just one where I don't speak lot, uh,
3: <laughs> for sure.
2: But no, I appreciate the, the opening. Hardly
3: so. a very easy one, right?
2: <laughs> we just end and say, Anna, did we get it? So, that's a really interesting take on this notion that other industries are heavily process-oriented and quality-focused. When I think about that from a... Software business point of view, my brain immediately says we can't just build like a very resilient widget because the platform on which that widget rests is constantly shifting and it's not the same. It's an apples to oranges comparison. I would love to hear again, that's my gut reaction. I'd love to hear from you, like, like tweak my thinking on that. Basically, how am I thinking about this the wrong way?
3: So, don't get me wrong, like, every industry out there, aviation, automotive, transport, oil and gas, whatever. They focus on quality management. So, they focus on addressing the root causes behind the problem and the true root causes. You know, like I see like incident response. Oh, the root cause was that uh, this here got exploited. No, 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 no. What, why was that exploitable? Why? Oh, well, because so-and-so did that. Okay, well, why did so-and-so do that? Oh, because they had this. Okay, why are we asking them to do that without considering the out- the downstream impact of that? Oh, because uh, there's no awareness. Why, why, why? You know, Toyota has a 5Y system where... When they find a root cause, they ask why five more times and go five levels deeper. Mm. so you you address those things, and you get this downward curve of issues over time or defects over time, because if you think about security vulnerabilities, they are defects. and they're they're actually quality defects in code, in the configuration of a system and how a system is built, in the context of a system, and the user, the the process around that. But there is a point at which, We've resolved the root cause of this thing that caused like 50% of our issues. And then the second most thing, well, that second thing, that that was 30% of our issues. And it's diminishing return. So you you do end up with this level of residual activity where it's just not worth it to fix the root cause because it's too expensive and that event happens so rarely that it's just not cost effective. That is the point at which risk management should start for that residual risk. Because if you look at the number of, you know, most vulnerabilities out there today... I'm going to say 98% of them are known defects. Cuz so we know how to patch systems. We know how to harden. It just doesn't get done. So, if we at least started doing those things, we would reduce our exposure by probably one or two orders of magnitude already. And that is really significant, right? That's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at because we are at a point where instead of having that downward curve in security Every year, we spend more money, and every year, we have more incidents. But then you look at those incidents, and 99.9% of them are brain-dead ones that we've known how to solve for 20 years. We just haven't done it because they creep in through process. We see new applications all the time that have three, four, five, six-year-old CVEs in them. Well, someone's using six-year-old code to build a new platform. That's a process issue. That's not, you know, the limit of, of technology or the art of the possible. We know how to do this, but we don't. Yes, only once you've done all that, then yes, okay, we do have some, some residual stuff and we should risk manage it, of course, but we're not doing the big picture. Very few people in security are bringing that total business life cycle so that management appreciates the real cost. It's it's usually like that kind of FUD, panic and fear. But with the exception of the very few kind of CISOs and security leaders that do that, the reaction I get falls into two camps. And the first one is, yeah. But please shut up because I like my job security, which is I think is a real problem in, in security because we, we really don't want to fix the problem because it threatens our employment. And really, I need to look at it as like, well, no, we have to be a bit more altruistic than that. Fix the actual problem. And if you are the one actually fixing the problem, you become far more valuable, which is how I've grown in my career, not by creating more problems to keep me busier, but by learning to fix bigger problems that create value. And the second one, which is quite common, is, and I think this is a problem of structure, it's... Yes, Greg, I understand that all these issues, you know, these process issues somewhere upstream or over there are causing me all this work and all these defects and it's costing the business all this money to mitigate and remediate. But I don't own those things. I don't own the IT department. I don't own the engineering function. I don't own the fact that the salespeople put contract data in this platform, blah, 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 blah. So I can't do any of that. And I think that is a, it's a truth but you've identified the problem. Now you need to actually adapt to fix it rather than just fall back on what piece of technology can I buy to mitigate that. It's like you have identified the problem. You need to influence processes somewhere else to create a structure where you can drive change, even though you don't own it. Every security issue is a quality issue, but not every quality issue is a security issue. But the root causes can be the same. So if I fix whatever, you know, causes my engineering teams to produce a lot of vulnerabilities in, in what they develop, quite often I end up with cleaner code. It runs faster. It's more stable. My customers are happier. My AWS compute costs go down dramatically. And you end up saving the business a lot of money because you're making quality enhancements that are go beyond just removing vulnerabilities. They they remove other defects. They improve performance. They improve reliability. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot of like, benefits, and they're all cumulative and sustainable benefits to taking a quality-based approach.
2: So... Greg it sounds like from the way that you've been talking about this a little bit that you've met with some resistance to spreading this as like your your thesis out out in the world can you talk about the differences maybe between the companies that are very receptive to this type of approach and wanting to put this in place and are just like, this is great. Like, stop talking. Let's go. Like, <laughs> how to, like, help me fix this versus the ones that are like, no, but quiet. You don't understand. I'm bleeding like crazy right now. And I need to like, I can't think about what you're saying because I'm bleeding out over here.
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think, you know, we hear a lot about the cybersecurity skills gap, right? That we don't have enough technical bodies to handle all these fires and i actually have this analogy for this for the last few years where it's like imagine you have like a car factory and there's an assembly line 100 stations on this assembly line and the car gets built through it and then you get this ready product gets pushed out into the car park except it gets pushed from the building from the third floor so it's in car park all smashed up and people have to move it to the side. Oh dear, we can't sell this. I'm going to get some people over there and build a little workshop around it and figure out what's wrong with it. What parts do we need to replace? What do we need to disassemble to get to those parts? What tools we need to do that? How do we prioritize? What's good enough? Let's create a framework on how to work together. Let's get some auditors in to make sure we stick to that. Let's get some vendors in to sell us some better tools. Let's get some consultants in to optimize how we how we do all this. And obviously every 30 seconds is another car coming down. And that's kind of like where the industry is at. And that's, that's the reason all these people are firefighting so much and so lost for breath. And there, there's another aspect of security. I, I often joke, you know, I used to do auditing and my job was to find organizations negligence so cyber insurance companies wouldn't have to pay for them post-breach, so they wouldn't have to pay for the breach. I was 100% successful and it never took me until lunchtime because they usually were so disconnected from the business that they didn't actually know what was going on that they were supposed to protect not surprisingly, also quite often how they got breached. There's a real lack in accountability in security. There's a lot of elitism, let's be honest. We've all sat in the room with security people bad-mouthing the users and the business and no management won't give us money, blah, blah, blah. But we're all very confident about how important we are. But then if I go up to your head of InfoSec who wants, you know, 2 million pounds or dollars of security spending, and I ask them, like, well, will there be positive return on investment for this, for the business, they're absolutely adamant. Oh, yes, yes, very important. We'll definitely save money this way. It's like, okay, Uh, how about you pay for it yourself and then you get to keep all the ROI on it. And all of a sudden, no one's very sure anymore. (laughs) So it's it's funny. And uh, there's quite a lack of accountability. I often say security in many ways is the best job in the world because no one really understands what you're supposed to be doing. No one knows whether you're actually doing it. And if you screw up bad enough, they triple your budget. (laughs) And I I used to do a lot of public speaking as well. And this was quite notable. When I would go into a place as an auditor or a consultant, especially as a consultant where you're really trying to help them, they get very upset at you. They don't like you criticizing or pointing things out that they didn't think of. It's very much like you're calling my baby ugly. And it, it gets very hostile very quickly. There's not really much of a growth mentality. But if you... But the same group of people in a room and you have a talk and you're not talking about their business specifically and you start explaining the concepts, then they just kind of light up and it's like, this makes a lot of sense. And they're very keen to go into work the next day and start applying the principles because it's not, you've not like insulted them directly. You've given them an idea, an approach that they can implement, take credit for, and then they're all too happy to do it. But the, the direct approach tends to be very, very difficult.
2: So with security, it seems like it's difficult that if everything is working, how do you sort of tie that back to the investment that the company has made in you, right? It's easier to say, well, we mitigated these 47 security vulnerabilities this year than it is to say nothing happened this year again. So we're all set. What does that conversation look like? And And I'm assuming those things come up in in consultancy of of like hey look like this is how you're going to have to start thinking about this and moreover this is how you're going to have to start advocating for the changes that we're gonna to make to to make sure that people can see the value, because if if we don't, like bottom line is gonna is gonna win out over anything else.
3: It's a very good question. I think risk quantification is is quite I'm gonna say interesting, but also gonna say pointless. Because you know, okay, we removed these 47 vulnerabilities, but what what is the actual value of those vulnerabilities? You know, and I, I look at risk management calculations, which are even the quantitative ones are extremely arbitrary it's like oh yeah we've removed all these vulnerabilities from this platform the service blah 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 and the next thing you know it's like well yeah but it's actually running on a hypervisor running windows 2008 so everything you've done can be circumvented like that so how can you stand behind that value so i think risk quantification as a whole is very tricky because there's no way of saying what those risks actually cost or whether they would have been exploited or not and one of the points I like to make is sometimes, oh, well, there's a, you know, that whole, we've done all the calculations and we've got an annualized loss expectancy for this risk of 200,000 pounds, but we can mitigate it 90% for 50,000 pounds. So, okay, well, that that's a good ROI. If that quantification is accurate, which I highly doubt it is, but that, let's assume it is, that's a good ROI. But then, you know, what if you increase the scope of it? Say so, okay, so we're going to spend let's say 50K to eliminate a risk of 100K, what could marketing do with an extra 50K? And if the answer is, well, marketing could probably give us an extra million quid in sales if we give them 50K. Well, does it still make sense to spend that money in security? Isn't it better for the business to just not do the security and do the marketing instead? So how how do you reconcile that? So I don't think security should be risk-led at all. I think it should be business-led. And I think once you start looking at security as a quality function, you now I'm fixing your, your engineering defects. And by fixing your engineering defects that are introducing all these security vulnerabilities, I am lowering your AWS costs by 2 million a year. I am doing a security review of your Salesforce. It's an actual scenario, which I spent uh, 20,000 euros doing. And I have removed all the excess accounts and I am reducing your spend on Salesforce by 48,000 per year. So I've just made you money securing you. There are so many. If you look at security as a quality function, on pure cost savings and agility enablement, you can justify it. And the risk reduction is a byproduct and you don't even have to count it. It's just gravy. And that's the approach I've, I've been taking. Because I can actually save the company more than double the cost of the security function, demonstrably. And I probably can't even demonstrate half of what I'm saving them. But I can already demonstrate that I'm saving them more than more than what they're paying me. So there's, there's a lot of ways of justifying security beyond just risk. Like a, a, the risk should be a byproduct. Security should be a quality function first and foremost. Drive business improvement, culture, process, efficiency. And you know, the risk reductions just come from having that higher level of quality, along with the financial benefits.
2: I think that's a really tidy way to sum it up. I was going to ask, like, is there a, is there a good like summation that someone can take away from this and start thinking about it differently? And I truly think that you've nailed it. All right, so let's jump into some self promo then, Greg. Where where can folks go to learn more about you and? the consultancy work. How do they bring you in and have you helped them put some of this stuff in practice?
3: Sure. So I wrote a book about three and a half years ago called Rethinking InfoSec, which was literally just an amalgamation of articles kind of just moaning about the state of security and doing a better job and, and this and that. And I've just been flabbergasted with how well it was received. It's just a you know, different, different way of thinking of, about stuff. And I've recently written something with, uh, it's a collaboration with Hitachi Vantara, but they, they basically gave me a carte blanche about it, but we included a, one of their blog series, a, a new book called What We Call Security. And that one is really calling out this quality approach, like what we are doing simply is not working. Every year we spend more. And every year we spend more as a percentage of budget as well, not just in absolute numbers, but as a percentage of budget. So it's it's unsustainable. So those two books, if you just want to kind of get the ideas going and i'm also starting a new consultancy i've not actually launched it but by march time it'll be out there the website's up it's uh, sequoia-consulting.co.uk but I'm, I'm hoping to really help people address these high-level strategic structural leadership issues basically
2: very cool no that's wonderful that's wonderful well greg it was uh it was a pleasure to have you on today thank you so much really really interesting conversation i think that people are going to get a lot out of this
3: i hope so so
2: cheers and thanks
3: thanks so much All
2: right, so finally, I think we can get into our latest game, Security Blank. Plus, we get to hear that new jingle again, so we'll drop it in here.
1: And we don't, we don't drop it in here anymore.
2: Well, okay. What do we do then?
0: But he didn't drop before. He's got to drop. He's got to drop it somewhere. Okay. It's hot.
2: <laughs> Is the jingle here or not?
1: It's loading, Okay.
2: So the rules of the game are simple. I will read out some recent security news headlines with one or multiple words blanked out. And Matt and Sarah will have to guess which words are missing from the headline. I will give multiple choice answers, but we'll start off with the comedy answers or actual guesses first. So the first news headline we have is from the Register in January of 2024. We'll take that blank blank over a flashy data spilling internet one. Thanks. Is it? We'll take that old-fashioned vacuum that plain dumb car that non-electric toothbrush or that seriously ugly toaster over a flashy data spilling internet one thanks
1: i can't believe tv isn't on the list i really want a plain dumb tv like a really high quality monitor basically
0: those are so hard to find
1: i know i've just bought a monitor and it's got all sorts of random smart features I just really don't want. I just want a really high quality monitor. But I think it's the other thing that I want a plain dumb version of. And it's a plain dumb car.
0: Mm. Oh, I'm going to go with a seriously ugly toaster. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we've been baited. I feel like Anna's baited us with the toothbrush, given the t- the articles today. But I think, I think it's a toaster.
2: Oh, well. In January of 2024, The Register ran an article titled, We'll Take That Plain Dumb Car Over a Flashy Data Spilling Internet One. Oh, come on. Yes. Yeah. Point to Matt. Uh, Can someone keep track of points, please? Because I won't do it while I'm hosting. Sure. Well,
0: I'm losing already, so I'm not going to do it.
2: (laughs) Could the person losing please keep track of the points the other person has?
0: This game is not good for me, but anyways, we'll wait and see. Maybe I'll pull it out.
2: All right. From Wired, just this month... Ransomware payments hit a record blank in 2023. Is it 350 million, 1.1 billion, 25 million, or have ransomware payments hit a record 1.25 million in 2023?
1: We must be talking billions now, right? I'm going to go B. B for billions.
0: I'm going to go 350 million.
2: 350 million. Well, in February of 2024, the month that we're recording this, from Wired ransomware payments hit a record $1.1 billion in 2023.
1: Oh come on. Oh Clean it yeah. up. Yeah.
2: Wow. Continuing on from Wired, also from this month, blank are a privacy nightmare. Is it AI girlfriends, ring doorbells, viral TikTok videos, or crowdfunding platforms? That are a privacy nightmare.
0: I feel like I should let Matt go first and just copy whatever his answer is because my odds will be better. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to go with ring doorbells because I think everything else is already a nightmare (laughs) without having privacy even added to it. (laughs) That's very good, Sarah. ring doorbells are where I'm going to go with.
1: I do think AI girlfriends would be a privacy nightmare. (laughs) I like the fact that the answer is plural as well. Uh, just just <laughs> AI girlfriends, just in general. Hmm. Yeah, do you know what? I'm going to go for AI girlfriends. I think chat GPT's there. You could have a bit of...
0: You wanted to go for doorbells? You wanted to go for doorbells. You just don't <laughs> want to be wrong like I am. You could
1: have a bit of banter with an AI girlfriend in, in chat GPT.
0: All right. If he's right, I'm going to be so sad.
1: So, this month, Wired ran
2: an article titled... AI girlfriends are a privacy nightmare. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Come on. It's so good. Come
1: on. Does that actually exist? You can have an AI girlfriend? Apparently.
2: You can have multiple.
0: (laughs) Oh, my Oh,
2: gosh. Well, Wired was apparently a treasure trove for us this month because uh, they also ran an article titled, I stopped using blank. It's great and a total mess. Is it passwords, VPNs, the internet, or I stopped using ad blockers? It's great and a
0: total mess. What are you going to say, Matt?
1: <laughs> I, I, I was just trying to chat, chat GPT.
0: <laughs>
1: and I asked it, what are you doing this weekend? And uh, it said, I'm here to help you with any questions or tasks you have any time of the day, every day of the week. So what can I do for you this weekend? <laughs>
2: let's, let's get back to the game. Uh, so,
1: Some hot stuff.
0: Mads. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, what would be a great and total mess out of these? It's great and a total mess. I need to be very clear. Oh.
2: I stopped using blank. It's great and a total mess.
0: I don't think you could stop using passwords. I don't think you can... mm. And I don't think you could stop using the internet either.
1: Oh, the Mennonites would disagree. No, do you know what? I'm going passwords. I I think February 2024, you could try and go all in on passwordless. You could.
0: Oh, passwordless. Oh, you're going passkeys.
1: It would be a little bit of a mess because if you stopped using passwords for everything, there are some services where you're like, I'm now stuck. But also... Ad blockers. The result wouldn't be great, though, would it? You'd just be like, I've just got ads now.
0: I feel like the password list, now that it's 2024, but I'm not going to cheat and use your answer. And because of my internet woes right now with my in-laws, I'm going to go with C, the internet. And I'm going to be wrong.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going for passwords.
0: (laughs) Is he right? Is it passwordless? I wonder if, I bet you it's passwordless. That's a very smart answer. In February of 2024,
2: Wired ran an article titled, I stopped using passwords. Oh my Ugh. goodness.
0: It's great and a total mess. That sounds right.
1: They were not using one password for their pass keys. No.
0: Nope. Well, I stopped using passwords in 2006 because I use one password. I don't know what my passwords are, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, does that count? That counts. It's not a total mess, though. It's just totally great.
2: You're just ahead of the curve.
0: Does it count? <laughs> I'm not ahead of any curves on this game. This game is. I'm going to be the host next week, please. Please let me be the host. I think I think you will be the host next week, yes. Oh, I hope so, because this is not good.
2: All right. Let's jump into the Wayback Machine for our final question here. To go to October of 2023, where the New York Times ran an article titled, Rethinking Security When So Many Threats Are Blank, Blank. Is it an absolute joke? Hiding in plain sight? Invisible? Or Rethinking security when so many threats are like solving a murder mystery. Is
0: the C invisible, like blank blank? Does she? Does she purposely messing with me, or is she? I don't know. Anna's got me. I'm gonna go with hiding in plain sight for zero all the way across the board, Alex. Please. What is hiding in plain sight?
1: <laughs> I I asked uh, my new partner Chat GPT um, about will I win the security blank game. And they, they said uh, winning a game, especially something as unique as the security blank game, would depend on various factors, like the rules of the game, your strategy, and perhaps a bit of luck. So, so thanks. So thanks for that.
0: So you need to work on your prompts there because, oh. you know, the answer should be you're already a winner, baby. Oh, okay. That's what the answer should be. Work on your prompts, man.
1: <laughs> um, I'm going to say C, invisible.
2: In October of 2023, the New York Times ran an article titled, Rethinking Security. When so many threats are invisible.
1: Oh my god!
0: I was right. She put the blank blank there to mess with me.
2: Matthew with the the sweep, the perfect Absolute score. Absolute
1: fluke of a
2: game. Take two bonus points, please, for that perfect score. That's wonderful.
0: <laughs> this is how you felt with the previous games, isn't it, Ruth? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: like,
0: like it's just bad. I can't do it.
1: Uh huh. Cloud nine.
0: That's fantastic. I love it. How great. I'm very bitter about this game. It's not working for me. Yes. Okay,
2: so you definitely know how I feel. I feel your pain.
0: I can't wait to be the host. I
1: asked uh, ChatGPT to give themselves a a human name so that we could build a relationship, and uh, they picked Alex.
2: Whoa.
0: (laughs) Whoa. Are they listening?
1: It's really creepy.
0: Uh, Good luck with you and Alex. I hope you guys all the best in the future.
1: (laughs) Thanks very much. <laughs> well, I
2: guess that that does it for another episode of Random but Memorable. This was fun. Until next time, love you both.
0: Love you both.
1: Love you both. Bye bye.